Hello and welcome to today's PropCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock and we're discussing the IPF consensus forecasts for the coming quarter. And I'm joined by Pam Craddock, who's the head of research for IPF. I'm joined by Tom Goodwin, who's the head of UK real estate research at Aviva Investors. And Malcolm Frodshen, who's director at Real Estate Strategies. And Pam Craddock, um, the IPF's been producing these forecasts for the last 19 years. And what, you know, what are some of the, the, the three headline takeaways for the, uh, for the latest piece? Okay, morning, Andy. Thank you. Um, I think what's most interesting from the recently published survey, which came out at the beginning of September, based on forecasts from over 20 different uh, contributors uh, over that summer period, is how the 2018 measures, broadly speaking, are continuing to strengthen um, but at the cost, shall we say, maybe of 2019, what we're forecasting are rental value and capital value growth, as well as total returns. Um, there have been particular upticks quarter on quarter throughout this year on 2018, but 2019 is definitely over the full five years that we're we're projecting going to be likely, most likely, obviously through the Brexit. Um, impact we, we presume to be the weakest of these five years and then a slow return recovery but not that uh, terrific shall we say but within those all property numbers there's quite a lot disguising individual sectors which I hope we're going to talk about shortly. Yeah and Tom Goodwin looking at those individual sectors there is a predictable polarization isn't there between uh, industrial which has performed splendidly for the last four or five years and retail, which is you know, which is on a, a not so slow decline. I mean, is is this just more of the same, or, or or are we are we really now seeing the crystallization of structural change? Uh, I think that's a really good question. Um, in terms of predictability, you mentioned is this a predictable change? I think it is. Uh, I think it's probably happened uh, at a more accelerated pace than people might have expected at the start of this year or or during last year. But really, there is, you know, there is a lot of structural change under underway in both of those sectors. Um, there are very various reasons we can go into as to why it started to happen all rather quickly. Um, but uh, I think what I, you know, I'm just going to lay some cards on the table. I would suggest that it's getting to the point in the industrial sector where people are being. Uh, very optimistic about growth assumptions in that. So you sector. mean they're overpriced. Um, too expensive. I think that people are underwriting very strong levels of rental growth. And we've seen five years of above inflation rental growth in that sector. I just think it's unsustainable to expect that picture to continue for another five years. Um, but uh, unsustainable growth, but the, but the assets themselves are sustainable. I think so. You know, everything's got the correct price. Everything's got an actual intrinsic value. And uh, the sector's structural supports are strong uh, and positive. I just think people need to be careful about how much they're willing to pay for that upside. And, and Malcolm Frodson, this sense of being careful and, and, and forecasting, um, are we doing a good enough job of looking under the bonnet? Yes, I think, I mean, one of the issues about forecasting is it is producing, if you like, one scenario for the world, one thing that is going to happen, but that's not going to happen to every single asset. Um, so what we need to do is we need to look at the forecast and say, well, okay, well, well, what do I believe is actually happening here? So Tom is basically saying, well, okay, there's rental growth over the last five years in industrials. Are people just extrapolating? 
It's a very common thing, a very common sort of trap to fall into. That because there's a difference, isn't there, between you know, big box and, and, and smaller multi-let. Yep. Well, that's an issue with what you're forecasting. So saying industrial is, is basically a misnomer, you know what is industrial about it. So there are differences in property types. So you have the big boss distribution and then you have the multi-let industrial estates. If you look at their trends over the last five years, in fact, region is the most important driver. So London and the Southeast has generated the rental growth, not outside London and the Southeast. So my question when I see these kind of numbers, and obviously we produce very similar numbers, is are people just extrapolating and saying, well, industrial rental growth four or five percent it'll be four or five percent forever so the question then is well has this ever happened before well tom alluded to it industrial is a late cycle performer five years ago any forecaster worth their salt would have said well if we see gdp growth industrial rents will grow because that's what industrial rents do but the other thing we've seen before is going right back to the early 1980s when we saw substantial growth in industrial rents because of a structural change so this has happened before, and I would argue that it's happening again because we're seeing another structural change. We're seeing a, a switch in the type of occupiers of industrial units, and they justify a higher use. Now, how long that's got to go, whether it's five years, whether it's ten years, then becomes the question. I think the thing for me is, uh, it, of all the sectors, it appears the least constrained by new development restraint, right? You can build more sheds. And the barriers to doing so are typically land availability, planning environments, and uh, availability of finance. Well, why not be, uh, and availability of labour. I mean, I think that's for, for, I mean, at the present point, before we kind of move into, you know, proper robotic um, stacking, as, as we will do at some point. But right now, if you are, if you're a major occupier and you're a developer looking for a prelet, the, mm-hmm. the, the Bound, the, the, the biggest barrier you have is, is how, how available is the workforce. Yeah, and um, so we've just done a big piece of work on this uh, in the context of identifying markets where we want long-term exposure. And availability of labour ranks currently at the top of occupiers' list of priorities when they're selecting locations. I think the thing about uh, technolog- technological change, which you alluded to, is even in an environment where the warehouse is fully automated, you require a lot of staff. If you go to an Amazon warehouse you will see multi-storey car parks outside. And now these people might be software engineers rather than pushing, yes, different pushing carts stores, around. Uh, but you do need access, access, access to labour pools. And I think that will remain important to occupy decision-making in the long term. And, and Pam Craddock, in terms of, of the value of these forecasts, obviously they're, they're based on the IPD universe. There's obviously, uh, they obviously infuse the, the good end of the market. It's the institutional assets um, it's it's valuated, but obviously you know we are seeing a, a, a lot of structural change, and and the IPF's doing quite a lot of other peripheral work, isn't it? Yeah, indeed, that's right, Andy. We've um, identified and uh, recently commissioned a piece of work which is going to look at whether indeed this is structural change within retail, thinking about the rise of e-commerce and how that's eating into into uh, the traditional retailers' uh, share of the marketplace. So we're actually wanting to understand what the influences could be in terms of how um, investors, the likes of the Aviva investors of this world, etc., potentially going to change their sector allocations. Now that means, because it's, it's at the moment a relatively finite universe, 
but there are increasing levels of interest in sub-markets, shall we say, emerging sectors and segments like healthcare, hotels, leisure and the like. And that's one of the things that I'm trying to do at the moment as well. Uh, again, matching against IPD, which we all recognise is not reflecting the market, but it's really the best that we do have. And, and Malcolm Fronton, if we, if we sort of dive a bit deeper into some of the sectors, mm-hmm. um, you know, what's your view on these? I mean, you, you've been pretty clear on, on industrial um, but when we look at um, you know we've had a lot of activity in city offices of late been some some tremendously large deals that have occurred um, I mean where do you see the pricing in those areas well that's the I mean that is the crucial point you you should always be looking at pricing it's it's whether you think pricing is is good value or bad value. But that's subjective, isn't it? Depending on on what your ob- ob- objective is. If it's simply just to to protect your your capital, then that's exactly. Different. So if you are constructing a portfolio going forward, then you are looking at your views of the markets going forward. Now, over the last ten years, a third of investment from UK institutions has gone into you know other sectors. So not retail, not office, not industrial. That's one third. That's a huge amount of money. So we've seen a huge expansion in healthcare, residential, student accommodation, hotels. So would you, would you describe industrials as a growth sector still? It feels ex-growth to me. Well, what, what would you have to assume to get industrial rents to grow? Now, you were talking about, you know, is there any restriction on supply? I would agree. Big box units. I remember 25 years ago being told you couldn't build another 100,000 square foot unit around the M25. Well, we seem to have built about 200 of them since then. So I tend to ignore anyone who says there's any restriction on supply whatsoever of big box units. Smaller industrial estates near chimney pots. How much restriction of there on that? Well, the London plan, I think, just came out. Well, there's plenty of restriction on that. So you have a sector which is naturally supply constrained. You have a sector which is seeing a structural increase in its demand. I I think you've hit an important point there. For me, it's not the sector as a whole. It's elements of it. And that that runs across office, retail and industrial. But I would agree urban logistics is a completely different story to the wider industrial big box picture where you have, as Malcolm says, got supply constraints in the form of high land values. And you've only got to look at areas in southwest London around Nine Elms and so on, which 10 years ago would have been occupied by FedEx warehouses and are now uh, covered in residential But But equally, though, when we look at, you know, we talk about retail and Mm -hmm. and CVAs and failures and solvencies and and big shops like Toys R Us going under, there's full, full, you know, full likelihood that many of these centrally located large retail assets will be flipped over into last mile delivery pods so that, you know, your colleagues when they're buying their kids iPads this Christmas can get those iPads to Aviva's central London offices in an hour. And that requires Amazon or, or whoever you purchase from to have sheds in town and and so i think there'll be there'll be greater use of uh consignment centers so we've seen no it. but my question is are our investors going to take the haircut and go you know what i'm not going to another retail tenant into this asset oh absolutely I, i'm yeah. gonna i'm gonna yeah. gonna you know cut my cut my hair and and uh, and and turn it into absolutely right i think i think the responsibility that uh, an investment manager has on behalf of their clients is to maximize the value from any investment that doesn't mean necessarily retaining its current use and being lazy. Even about. if that means shredding the value. What do you mean by shredding well, the value? I think if the, the higher land value use is not in retail warehousing, it's in something else, then absolutely that's the right strategy for a fiduciary to take. 
we did a piece of work a couple of years ago, probably more than that now, looking at what uh, constitutes property for investment purposes with very much a view to looking at the wider uh, remit vis-a-vis uh, new emerging markets, um, such as has been mentioned already in healthcare and the like. Um, what we're endeavouring to do is to capture that in both the research generally, particular projects, and the quarterly surveys as well. This is, this is classic, though. These, these are emerging sectors. So in an emerging sector, you have less transparency. So you will t- typically go in at a higher yield. So the early adopters will get the benefit when it goes right, retail warehousing classically, and do not so well when it goes wrong, business parks, arguably. There's plenty, been plenty of failures in, in real estate as well as the successes. Question now going forward, is residential going to be an institutional asset class? Really difficult. Is there, is there really that premium for the uncertainty? But I would guess, and from an institutional investor's perspective, you're far more enamoured of you know, letting to a family who will want a degree of certainty in their tenure because they've got kids in local schools and such like. Broadly speaking, this may be more anecdotal, but they look after their properties better than, you know, if you've got a very transient population of, dare I say it, students or young professionals or whatever coming in and out and, and moving through a city and such like. I don't know, Tom, do you think that multifamily is partly the future for an institutional residential exposure? I think for us, uh, the gap in the market currently is how do institutions get exposure to single family mid-market housing? That's where the majority of demand is. That's where uh, the majority of the uh, demographic strengths and structural support for the sector are. Um, I would question whether the price is appropriate in the multifamily and high-rise residential uh, blocks that have been, you know, developed in recent years, and institutions, other institutions, have started uh, moving quite heavily into that part of the sector. For us, the, um, you know, our origination team is not who decides what our clients want. Any product development or addition to the portfolio is driven by the underlying investor need. And for us, at the moment, uh, multifamily or private residential blocks don't meet an investor need. I'm um, just just pulling it. Back to uh, the, the consensus forecast just before we finish. I think you, you've um, got to have a view of the future, haven't you? You've got to see where things are going 10 years out. And technology is changing so rapidly in the, well, I suppose you'd call it the retail and industrial sector, but the way in which consumers access the goods that they want. And that's far more important than whether we think 2019 is going to be the lowest return. Absolutely right. You yeah. look at the numbers and you say, look at that. You know, there are structural things that are coming through. At the moment, what we're doing is... Uh, reflecting where our contributors are looking to the future, how much of a degree they are factoring in potentially major changes in the way in which we consume goods and services, hence impact on, well, across all three of the, the traditional sectors, never mind looking to the future to accommodate people's needs in, in terms of housing, healthcare and such like with an ageing population. Because, I mean, this report, which is great, and I always read it, it's about the cycle. It's cyclical. And cycles are important because you're going to trade through the cycle. But actually, what's going to really drive your portfolio with the structural factors? I would like to know what valuers have now got factored in as long-term rental growth on industrial and what they factor in for long-term rental growth on retail because they hide behind this all-risk equivalent yield 
and you can't unpack it. You don't actually know what a valuer thinks. You don't know if they think tenants are more likely to go bust or less likely to go bust. You don't know if they think that in the long run, retail rents will return to trend and it's just a cyclical thing because they don't put the assumptions in. Well, in, investors are implicitly doing that anyway, aren't we? Right? When we're managing a portfolio or looking at potential acquisitions and disposals, we're having to make some of these assumptions ourselves. And But how can you? These are big, big existential questions. You have to. It really annoys me. Every time you buy a building, you pay a price. That price is in pounds. That pounds translates into assumptions. You have to make assumptions for all these things because you are paying a price. So what are you assuming? Are you assuming that, you know, the CVA process is, is grind, you know, is the coming to an end? the voluntary agreement, the, the insolvency process yeah. we've seen much of over the last 10 years. Because arguably, over the next six months, we're going to see much less CVAs. But arguably, we could see the biggest ever, which will be Debenhams and M&S. We tend to see pretty big ones, don't they? They happen in the first quarter normally, don't they, when people's rents well, are due? Well, Q1 2019, put it in your diary. That's when retail hits its nadir. So who would you, who would you strike off of your... Well, if Debenhams survive, if M&S survive, I think M&S probably will survive, you will see such a, it's such a divergence because if the high street absolutely sees the demise of its biggest anchors that is one you know that's one scenario for the world if they survive and if they get through we're going down another scenario where the high street survives now in a forecast this is just one view of the world if you put scenarios in you get a different view and you can put a scenario in that's quite positive and you can say actually these retailers they are going to survive and actually, the, the online retailers, they're not making that much profit. In fact, a lot of them make a loss. And, and who have you been impressed or unimpressed by recently? Well, the recent results from Next were incredibly encouraging. So it's one of those where if you tried to put a probability on the high street doing you know, well versus not so well, the fact that Next did well increases your confidence, if you like, in the retail sector. So I would almost certainly have said as soon as those results came out, the price of retail should have come, gone up, you know, yield should have come down. You know, these are the good times. Imagine what retail is going to do in the bad times. If we had a recession in 2019, what would happen? You know, these are, retail sales are actually quite healthy in 2018, and we've lost so many of our national retailers. This, this uh, consensus and the wider IPD indices represent the average, and you'll have assets within each sector and within each individual segment that deliver stellar performance. Now, some of those will be retail warehouses in central London or wider uh, outer London that get uh, converted into residential or at least are being priced as uh, in, in terms of their alternative use. And you think that's, is that happening more and more now, do you think, in terms of that, that pricing for change? Because that's quite an interesting concept if you're buying something that's currently a shop that's priced not as a shop. Yeah, I think investors are more aware of it on on their acquisitions and disposals. So when an when an investor is selling a retail warehouse park, they will consider whether or not that has a residential conversion value. And if it does, the agents will go to house builders as well as retail warehouse investors. And I mean, finally, that's quite an interesting point to end on, Pam Craddock, in terms of reflecting hope value, reflecting change value what what, what do you have a do you have a, a view on that a thought a personal view perhaps that's a really difficult one because 
I don't know, I'm, I'm some distance away from the valuation process and such as to just how much validity you can give to Hope Value. But again, it comes back to assessment of risk. And one of the difficulties, I think, as an industry we, we've had in the past, I think it's less so now, but very difficult in, uh, or considerable difficulty in articulating risk. So we shouldn't be looking at returns, we should be looking at risk-adjusted returns. And uh, it's, it's 20 years plus since I was in fund management, and I'm sure processes are, are much more developed and enhanced, and it, it comes into play constantly. But going back to Malcolm's point, the, the opacity in the equivalent or all risks yield is something that we're, we're seeing that disappear now because increasingly where it's cash flow that is driving the value, you're using the DCF and you use the discounted cash flow and, you, you, and it's your choice of a discount rate which is so important. But I think uh, as an industry as well, we're very relative. Um, I mentioned about benchmarking recently. We, we, we still look to peer comparison. We use the indices as a, as, a, as a way of translating and looking at our benchmarks. But I think um, there's a counterbalance to that. And Tom mentioned about matching liabilities. What is your investor looking for? Which is where I, I personally think absolute, the rise of absolute returns as a, as a target, a hurdle rate or whatever, is very important. But maybe it's a blend of all those things. Mm. And, and ultimately, that's, that's why the sentiment... Uh, measure that we have is, is is still very very relevant fantastic well look thank you pam craddock from the ipf tom goodwin from aviva and malcolm frodsham from real estate strategies and we've been talking about the ipf consensus report and if anybody is interested in getting in touch with pam craddock about taking part in further issues uh, and editions of this report then you can get in touch via the ipf website thanks very much thank you thank you